This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. The guest this week is Ollie Walsh from Pipit, P-I-P-I-T dot global. If you want to check out their website, they're a socially conscious organization aimed at making an impact on the planet's poverty for the better. Ollie's one of the new wave of graduates from the 1990s. It was in university that Ollie started reading a lot on world affairs, which he still does, social justice, geopolitics, all that stuff. Outside of his day job, this is still of great interest to Ollie. There's a couple of calls to action on this podcast for policymakers and for venture capitalists slash partners. So it would be great if this conversation were to lead to some change somewhere for the better. You'll hear my attempts to keep up to speed with what Ollie's talking about. And I do drop the ball a couple of times, but it's still in there. It's a conversation. I was saying to Ollie afterwards, this podcast is almost like a conversation inside a bar. And the person asking the questions is just a regular guy. Except there's no alcohol. Not yet. Not too much. If there has been, I didn't notice any. Anyway, let's go to that barroom chat without the booze. Band, wrap it up. This is the Ireland Podcast. Hello. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? I'm Ollie Walsh. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Pivot Global, which is a payments company, a social impact payments company. We help migrants support their families cheaper and safer. I was looking at your website this morning, pipit.global. Tell me, who is your competition? Uh, our competition really is Western Union um, and MoneyGram and, and those kind of companies. So we, we started off as um, you know, a financial inclusion company. Or my, my, I have two co-founders, Julian Callahan and Rory Ryan. And Julian is a the idea is, man, he's also somebody who's wary of giving his banking details away, um, is into his, his security. And he had the idea of being able to pay in cash for an internet order. He, so he approached me to work on the plan because I'm from a strategic background, strategic marketing background. And I approached Rory because he was a friend of mine. He was in the tech world. And what we originally built was a model where you could go onto a website, order uh, a new jumper, Instead of selecting Visa or MasterCard, you select Pippus and you get a barcode sent to your phone and then you can go into a shop, scan that barcode and pay cash over the counter. And then once the payment is made, the website gets notice, gets notified that the payment's been completed and then they ship the goods. So that's what we built first and that's what we went to market with. Um, and it was kind of a, a financial inclusion, social impact model because people who don't have cards unbanked or excluded from the internet world uh, and people had security concerns. Now, this is seven years ago, and payments have changed considerably in terms of how you make payments online. And, and that evolved then into um, kind of cross-border payments. We got, um, about a year, two years after we started up, we got funding from a UK social impact fund called the Key Fund, and that required us to do a, uh, an accelerator in England, so called Dot Forge, which was an accelerator for uh, social impact tech companies. So uh, I moved to Sheffield, on three days' notice with my wife and then 13-month-old son, doing the accelerator and my first time, my only time emigrating and immediately had problems getting places to rent because I didn't have an English bank account and they wouldn't accept my Irish bank account, even though it was in a separate region. England was still in the EU at the time. And, um, you know, we had to pay cash, six months' rent plus a month's deposit in advance to get somewhere to live. Um, we were fortunate to be able to do that because we were at this time funded by this um, by the key fund, and kind of the process of moving country and being in, in the accelerator, um, kind of got us thinking: what else can we do with what we've built, and, and how are migrants getting money home now? And then we start or supporting themselves and making payments, and we started looking at remittance and Western Union and realizing how much it costs for unbanked migrants to get money home. So to send money from pretty much anywhere in Europe to Africa is about nine point five percent of the transaction value is the fee. With, with you or with, with... With Western Union or with, MoneyGram or, okay. or any of these kind of guys. Yeah. So 
the model we built is, you know, Western Union, I just send you cash and you go to a kiosk and collect it. With our model, you can lodge money across border into an account. So you might have an e-wallet at home in Ghana um, where you can lodge cash in Ireland into that wallet. And then once it's at home in, in, in your local currency, CDs in Ghana, you can then pay bills and you can send it to your family. But it costs you 3.5% instead of 9.5%. So we also do, we still do e-commerce, so we do kind of cross-border e-commerce. So if you're living in Galway, you can order something from a website in Kenya, have it delivered straight to your family in Nairobi, but pay for it in cash in the Spar and Mainger Street. Um, and it's 3.5%. Why 3.5? I mean, that's that's a huge difference. Um, that was a strategic, conscious decision because we're social impact. Um, we're, we're Explain what that is. The reason for most businesses is to make money for the shareholders. For us, we want to make money for the shareholders, but we want to make an impact in society as well. So we've actually written that into our into our company constitution that, that the mission of this company is to make an impact for society. Um, and therefore, we don't make decisions outside of that. So we don't do payments for gambling companies, for example. Um, so the reason we picked 3.5 is because we're very strong on, you know, you have a lot of charities working with migrants and you have a lot of NGOs and they're all looking for funding and they need their, so much of time is funding. We're strong on that if you can offer a really valuable service to the, to the customer, in this case, the migrant, um, they will use it. But if you can do that at a margin and make a profit, then it's a win-win scenario. And then you're, you're doing good. There's more money getting onto the ground in emerging markets because the migrant can send more money home or they have more for themselves to support them, their, their lives, less money going in fees. And that's how we measure our impact. Um, but we decided not to just go 1% below the competition. We decided to go as low as we could um, and, and be profitable to, to make the maximum impact. And make the maximum impact, which then is not going to affect the maximum growth, is, is the way we model it. And how are things growing? Well, we, we, we started off, um, like I said, we moved to England. So we started doing transactions from the UK to Ghana was our first rails. Um, we can now do cash, physical cash payments in 28 countries. Um, some in, like Ireland, England, France, Germany, um, but a- 18 countries across uh, across Africa and 10 in Latin America. And in total, we can do payments in 51 countries now because we also now do uh, mobile money and bank payments because part of the process of kind of analysing the market, what we realised, I think is a, a Western assumption perhaps, that when somebody from Africa migrates, they move to Europe or to the US, but 70% of African migrants stay in Africa. And it's actually more expensive to send money cross-border within Africa than it is from Europe to Africa. So um, we do cash payments, like Nigeria would be one of our biggest markets for cash payments. Um, but across a lot of Africa, people don't necessarily have bank accounts, but they have mobile money accounts. So basically a PayPal-style e-wallet. So once you have a phone in Africa, it comes with a mobile money account. So we can send money to those accounts or we can take money out of those accounts if somebody wants. So we, we can do cross-border transactions within Africa. So yeah, so now we do cash, the mobile money, and we do bank bank payments. Okay, so yeah, and is there any ones that you're missing out of those three? We can do cards. We could do cards. We're connected to, to card rails, but we don't do them because they're the highest instance of fraud in payments. So we've just stayed away from it for that for those reasons. So the bank transfer is basically tra- transferring from one bank account to another, yeah. using the bank account uh, details and so on. Yeah. Whereas uh, the cards is Visa and yeah. so on, Mastercard. Exactly. Yeah. What are the greatest instances of fraud through cards? Chargebacks. So you, you buy something from a website and um, after it's been shipped, you then charge the money back to your Visa claiming that it was fraud. So Visa or MasterCard automatically refund your account. They, they charge the retailer the fees for the chargeback plus the amount. So the retailer is the one that loses out. That's by far the biggest instance of online fraud really is, is chargebacks to cards. So tell me about the newest kids in the block, there's a lot of talk about Revolut and some about N26. So they're what are called neobanks, so purely online banks. They don't have branches is the big difference. Um, from from our perspective, um, you know, we're, we're still targeting the unbanked as our main customer. You know, the, the, the Revolut's and the N26 have a very smooth onboarding process where you sign up online but you still need all the same documentation you do to open a Bank of Ireland account. So you still need a proof of address uh, and your ID. And for migrants, the proof of address is the big problem because, um, you know, if you're moving to Ireland because you've got a job at Google or Facebook, 
you know, all that's kind of organized for you. But if you're moving to Ireland or the UK and you're a low-income migrant and you're working in a building site or you're working in hospitality or you're driving a taxi, you're in shared accommodation usually and there's only so many bills. So a lot of people don't have a proof of address because um, usually the first person living there is the person who has electricity bill or the gas bill or whatever it is. So the same barrier exists even with a with a, a, a Revolut account or an N26 account. You still have to have a proof of address. So that's that's the biggest blocker really in, in getting banked. So you, you talk a lot about migrants. May I ask, where do you see the most Irish people using your service? We, we don't really see very many Irish people using our service because, um, because you know, 50 years ago, we were the ones working on building sites, but now we're the engineers <laughs> that yeah. are getting the jobs at Google. So it's mainly um, migrants moving from Africa to uh, Europe who are using our service at the moment. But we also do inter, inter-African payments. So uh, we see a lot of transactions in Nigeria, for example, or Ghana and Senegal. Whenever I was living in China, I, I heard Western Union all the time. I didn't hear Pippet so much. In fact, I don't recall hearing it once. It may, may have been in conversation, but um, how are you getting the message out there that you use? So we're a B2B brand. So our, our platform at one end is connected to payment types, at cash, bank, and mobile money. And the other type side is connected to merchants, who could be e-commerce or e-wallets or billers. Uh, or we can also do banks. So the, the customer, in, in this instance, is a customer of our merchant. So for example, say Flutterwave is a big African payments institution. Their app is called Send. So we provide payments for Flutterwave in France, but the customer the customer account is with Send. So the customer doesn't necessarily know they're using Pipit. Okay. So um, that was also part of the strategy because you know, to create a payments brand, a lot of trust involved, and especially payments going to Africa. Um, so as opposed to creating a, a B2C brand where the consumer knew who we were, we decided to create a B2B brand where we provide payment services for existing payments institutions and then they provide the service to the customer. And are you going to move to B2C? We, we are in the process of partnering up with a, with a B2C client where we'll be, we'll be closer to the customer. Um, you know, from an investment perspective, investors kind of say, well, B2C is too expensive to build, but then kind of B2B2C you're a step removed from the consumer. So we're, 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 it's a tricky space sometimes because you're relying on somebody else to, to, to do your customer acquisition, to consumer acquisition. That's the model we're, we're working on. Mm-hmm. What did you do to get into this type of work? Well, my, my academic background is is strategy and marketing. I have a, my degree is from Athlone. What was Athlone RTC? Um, 30 years ago, I suppose. Uh, a degree in international marketing and then have a master's from um, NUIG in, in strategic marketing and I've two postgrads in entrepreneurship entrepreneurship and innovation as well. Um, I, I kind of, the route I went was, you know, I, I kind of got to the end of my degree and you start getting these um, graduate packs and it was for all the big corporates and I kind of had a sudden realisation that I'd a degree in something I really enjoyed but I didn't want to work for any of these companies. Uh, so when I finished college, myself and a friend of mine, uh, Mark Donner, opened a, a comic shop in Galway called Needful Things by way of not getting a real job, but, but getting a bit of experience at the same time. Does that still exist? No, we ran it for four years. We opened it in 94. We closed it in 98. Mm. Um, it was originally in Middle Street in Galway, and then I moved into the Air Square Centre. Through that process of opening that business, I kind of met a lot of business people in Galway. Um, and then I started getting work to do market research for people into business plans and to do strategic plans. So I kind of got to the stage where the, the 80-20 rule kicked in where 80% of my income was doing plans and, and it was 20% of my time. And the other the other part of that ratio was being in the shop. It was 80% of my time and 20% of my income. So Mark decided to go back to college and go a different direction and we closed down the shop and uh, I started doing um, strategic planning for, for companies basically. This is back in 98 when the, the internet was a new Phenomenon. So we started doing websites. We were very early in doing websites, doing design. Then, so we kind of became a full service um, marketing design web company. Um, we, I kind of went into a few other spin-offs. Then we also opened up a, a martial arts shop in Galway, selling martial arts equipment and a website to go with it. Um, I was doing music promotions, DJ promotions in town, putting on gigs around Galway and sometimes in Cork and Dublin as well. 
uh, doing way too much stuff, basically. Um, and I kind of retrenched back around the, the time of the crash, really retrenched back just into doing marketing. 2008. 2008, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, quickly found that as a, as, a, as a consultant, you're the first to get cut when things go bad. Um, so we stopped doing design, stopped doing web, really, and just started doing my own work. Um, so that kind of, and I also had a, my, my dad's an engineer, so we, we had a company, my dad Paul's an engineer, so we had a company where he was designing products in the golf industry and in um, hardware, as in as in DIY, physical products, hardware, not, not computer hardware. So we were designing products, <clears throat> going through the entire product design, patenting it, getting a manufacturer in China, getting it distributed in the States. So we got three or four products from, from idea generation all the way through the process to being on a shelf. Um, which was a, you know, a, a, a huge global experience traveling to China to meet manufacturers and doing trade shows in Las Vegas and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, by the time Julian had the idea for, for Pippet, I had uh, a lot of experience in going to market with products, with strategic planning, with global footprints. Um, so it was really when Julian kind of approached me with the idea my initial thought was like, this is a really good idea. And then we did the plan and thought, this is actually a really good idea. So let's let's actually do this. And then we did, you know, bootstrapping for two years, really, where the three of us kind of uh, kept our day jobs, but um, worked on building the product, building um, the minimum viable product, as it's called now, but that phrase didn't exist at the time, uh, looking for finance. And then we got our first bit of finance. Um, myself and Julian went, went full time and then, when we got some more finance, Rory, I went full time as well. What year was this then? Um, it was 2014, 2015. Okay. So yeah. it was probably 2013, I'd say the company was formed. And then 2015 was when we got got um, the first round of funding. So, yeah. So as a result of the funding, they obviously own part of the company. Yeah. Yeah. And have you had more funding from that company or other companies? Yeah, for, for a while I was kind of dual-tracking, working other things, but, you know, for the last five years or six years, it's been um, Pippet, although I do occasionally do some consulting as well. The uh, the financial life in a, in a startup ebbs and flows, so now and again you have to turn on the consultancy just to make sure everything uh, adds up. So, yeah, in total now, since then, we've taken in about €2 million Euros in, in funding. Wow, a lot of money this sloshing around. Well, you know, when you get your first funding, like the first funding we got was um, 100,000 euros and we thought this will last us forever. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, you're getting 500,000 thinking this is only going to last six months. Wow. So, so, that's, so then suddenly you grow your team, you get funding and you grow your team and people get to be paid and then you need more office space and everything becomes more expensive. And so there's, um, um, it's a constant kind of cycle of, of looking for more funding. And as a CEO your role kind of changes. You spend a lot of time looking for funding and then once you get it, you spend it spending it and then looking for more and because there's there's kind of a, you know, the, the, the US model, the Silicon Valley model is that you should never be making money in a, in a company. If you're making money, you're not growing fast enough is, is their model. You should be always looking to get investment to grow faster, which is kind of, a, I would imagine kind of Amazon started that model really with their, their model was just to get more and more investment. I come from a building background. So, you know, I, I've seen recessions hit um, that sector and how they can be caught with their, their trousers down because mm. they've overinvested and, um, you know, they're millionaires many times over. And then what happens is the market turns, everybody's looking money back and they've got the shell out. So, um, yeah. Exactly the same happens in the tech world. Um, you've seen it now recently where... Stripe and Facebook and LinkedIn and um, all these people have let off thousands of people around the world. Um, you know, Stripe took in, I think, two billion in investments at a 90 billion valuation and the following week let off 10,000 people. It's that kind of model of just trying to grow, 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 grow all the time, um, which isn't sustainable, obviously, because once there's a downturn, they have to let people go. So, um, you know, coming from a kind of a pretty lean tech company position it's hard to know where this money goes sometimes yeah you see it all the time and, and then the investment cycle goes with that where you see kind of investors when when there's a crash um the investors turn their focus to to startups at that stage um when, when it's growing they put all the money into what's growing so the metas and the linkedins and the stripes of the world when there's a crash they then turn their attention to startups because they can get better value 
And in, instead of investing 10 million in one company, invest a million in 10 companies with the model that one of those will be in their bets. A, a big return. Yeah, yeah. So I think with the, with the kind of VC venture capital funding model is, you know, for every 10 you invest in, seven will crash and burn, two will do all right, and one will be a, a star. Mm-hmm. So how many employees do you have? Six for the moment. And how many offices do you have? So I, I see on your website you've got addresses in England, Ghana, Canada, India, Nigeria. Are they just addresses or are they actual physical offices? Uh, they're, they're partner companies. So a big part of our strategy, because we're so small, is, is to partner with kind of in-country um, uh, entities that can, that can support us and we support them. So um, like our office address in Nigeria is a company that, that helps us build... Um, introductions and network over there but but we provide them services as well We're, we have a very um collaborative model um to to growth and which i think the the industry is coming around to kind of when we started it was very competitive it was a a winner win or lose kind of scenario whereas now a lot of companies are when you, when you dig into a lot of companies are they're kind of offering each other services so most of the companies we have big partnerships with, they provide us payment services in some countries and we provide them payment services in other countries. And then we kind of, um, we can represent them here in Europe. When I say here, I mean Europe and, and they can represent us in, in, in market, whether it's India or Canada or, or, or Ghana. So do you actually have a physical office anywhere in the world? Well, we're based in the Portrait Shed in Galway is our physical office, which is the Galway's tech um, co-working space. Um, most most of our staff are here. Well, there's four of us are here. One's in the UK, and one one lives in in Tenerife. How many work remotely? Pretty much all of us. I mean, we have we have the office in in, in Galway, but I don't go to it very often. I kind of work from home as well. Yeah. So, uh, um, of of the six of us, you can say six work remotely. Wow. So the office is more of a meeting space. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much so. Yeah. But we were kind of like that before COVID. I mean, the 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 work from home. You know, before COVID, we were just twelve of us. So, like I said, it ebbs and flows. The tech world, uh, the startup world, um, but you know, of that twelve, two of them were in the UK. One of them was in Germany at the time, and we weren't. We were we were based on output, so it doesn't make a difference to me where you're sitting, or whether you work from nine to five or from from ten to one o'clock in the morning, as long as the output is 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 what's measured. So you're setting goals for your employees and I want this done, or I assume it's a conversation, so you agree together what can be delivered by what time and then that's how people are measured. Exactly. So we have a, we have a 10 o'clock call every every morning. Monday, Monday to Thursday we have a 10 a.m. Uh, stand-up, 30-minute call. So everybody generally is on that. But you know, people have kids and you're dropping your kids to school or picking up your kids, it's all right. You can organise your meetings and your time scale around it and people have lives, so... We're, we're very much that, you know, that's part of the kind of the culture of the company. Everybody knows that, that their, their time is flexible, but they deliver their output. So everybody does. So you see a lot in the media now of the big corporates kind of trying to drive people back into the office because they're worried that they're not working hard enough at home. But if you're, if you're measuring people's output, not their hours, you get what the company needs. Yeah. And having social impact in your organization's DNA that would spell out that you are more flexible in terms of being realistic about the challenges of people, you know, having a life outside of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it's 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 key for for a couple of things as well. You know, for for the mission of of the company that you know everybody that's in the company is aligned with that mission. Um, when we when we started off, I remember my first my first conversation with a with a professional investor and I told him about social impacts, his, his advice to me was to never say that again. So based on that, I always lead with that in conversations <laughs> with investors. And you can tell immediately if somebody glazes over that they're not the right person to talk to. But if they are the right person to talk to, they sit up and pay attention because there are people out there who, who are looking to make an impact as well. And when we started, like we're in the UK and we were talking to kind of UK banks and, you know, about what we were doing and helping migrants and that got us referred to the CSR department, you know, or the, the PR, the corporate, corporate social responsibility. So for for kind of in Europe, or that was viewed as a as a, as a publicity piece of information as opposed to a, a mission for the company. But when you're talking to to companies in Africa and in Latin America and India, they're really 
aware of the impact of remittances into their country and how valuable it is for their societies because it's not just the family because the family gets the money but then they spend it in, in the community and you know the remittances are spent on on food the, the basics food bills shelter then after that it's education which is the number one route out of poverty after that is uh, health and then after that is people investing in their own businesses whether it's buying something new for the farm or buying something new for the shop or you know, literally a plumber buying a bicycle doubles their catchment area if they can cycle, mm. you know. So um, when you're when you're talking to companies in Africa about this is what we're doing, they take it much more seriously because they understand the impact that, that's been made in their communities. There's a lot of, I mean, obviously you've, you've heard of BRICS and all the rest, mm. um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, um, S, what's S? Just a plural. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Nigeria is not mentioned there, but I hear through various podcasts that Nigeria is going to be the big player of tomorrow. How do you frame Nigeria in the current economic climate and how do you see it playing its part tomorrow or in the future? Um, Nigeria is, is really the powerhouse of, of Africa at this stage. I mean, Nigeria... South Africa has always been the powerhouse. Nigeria's caught up in the last couple of years, and, and Kenya and Ghana would also be up there. Um, it's it's a it's an interesting place to visit. I mean, it's 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 there, there there's huge poverty, wealth disparities there. Um, but you know, looking at kind of twenty fifty, there's a there's a two hundred three hundred mile corridor along the west coast, kind of starting from Ghana into Nigeria. We're expecting something like thirty percent of the world's population to live there by twenty fifty. Is that because they're all going to migrate to there? They're all migrating to that okay, region. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, because, like I said, the, the seventy percent, like the Zimbabweans, migrate to, to, to South Africa because it's across the border. Whereas the surrounding areas in 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 West Africa migrate to, to Ghana or Nigeria, with uh, Benin being in between the two. Um, it has an opportunity to be huge um the infrastructure there is a disaster um the corruption there is seriously problematic um you know the, there's kind of social divides that you know like like a lot of africa their lines drawn on a map by former colonials when they were taken over the place which don't adhere to the local cultures or the local communities um so there's a lot of kind of potential conflict over there but in terms of like tech they, they've leapfrogged over well, Europe and the States in terms of how they're making payments and the tech companies. There's, there's a huge amount of money being attracted into there at the moment because of the opportunities. I think a lot of the, the kind of Western investors see the opportunity in, in Africa. They're kind of afraid of it. A lot of that fear is um, perception about what Africa is. Some of it's real in terms of corruption and in terms of, you know, the, the central bank in Nigeria, for example. You know, in, in Europe... We'll know, we'll have five years' notice that the Payment Service Directive is changing and be ready for it. Um, about six months ago, the Central Bank in Africa published a letter at midnight about changing in payment laws, which went into effect at 8 a.m. that morning. So mm. people came to work to find the law changed since yesterday yeah. in terms of banking regulations. So it's, it's um, it, it, if it's done right, it could be amazing. Is it going to be done right? Is is a is a very open question. Mm -hmm. Do you fear for your life going there? It's edgy. Mm. It's edgy. Um, Do you have bodyguards or any other crack? No, no, we don't. Um, I, I, a lot of the Westerners you see over there will have bodyguards. Um, I, I kind of went to like we we you know we organised with the companies that we partnered with over there to organise a driver for us for the week. So um, we have the one driver all the time, so we're not we're, we're not getting taxis, we're not going with anybody we don't know. Yeah. We're always with somebody that, that is is a, a reliable um, person. Um, but my feeling was that security kind of attracts attention. Yeah. So you do see kind of a lot of um, um, kind of blacked out SUVs zooming around the place with escort cars and that kind of thing, and a lot of Westerners with, with armed guards. Uh, which is kind of more unsettling for everybody else than it is settling, I think, for for, for the person. 
Um, but no, n- never gone the, the security route. But, um, um, you wouldn't rule it out for the future, though. Well, it's, it's, well, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. No. What are the challenges of setting up in Ireland? I don't know if we want to zoom out and just think about the fintech world in general. There's a lot of positives first, I would think. I was going to get on to that. Uh, well, let's start with the positives. <laughs> let's start with the positives, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. The positives, you know, there's, there's now a, a really strong ecosystem in the country for tech companies, um, which is, you know, partially the result of, you know, the IDAs, FDI foreign, foreign direct investment policies bringing in LinkedIn's and Facebook's or going back in, in Galway, going back to digital in the 80s, um, manufacturing computers here and, and Dell when they were in Limerick. Um, Was a lot of that to do with the corporation tax being so low? Uh, undoubtedly, mm-hmm. undoubtedly. But, um, uh, the other part of that is, you know, the, the decision in, in the 80s to make education, third level education, essentially free. So, you know, at a time when, you know, I started college in 1990, when there was not a whole lot of employment and, you know, people went to college, uh, you know, for want of something else to do sometimes. Um, But um, that has ended up with a highly educated um, um, market for people. So, I mean, if you look at Galway, our population is 80 something thousand in the city, but 25,000 of those are students. So you've got a, a huge ecosystem here. You've got companies who are um, have experienced people in it because they can work for, you know, in, in Goa, you've like for Genesis, for example, who's a big tech company here. Um, those kind of companies are spinning out, people doing their own startups. So you kind of got experience. You've got ecosystem. You've got the likes of the Porter Shed where you've got support structures. Then you've got the likes of Enterprise Ireland who um, um, it can be difficult getting into Enterprise Ireland because they have a very specific mandate. Uh, a lot of people don't realise that and think Enterprise Ireland support every company, but they don't. You need to be an exporting company. Um, you know, there's funding available through them. The, the international support through them is, is just fantastic. So in, in everywhere in the world that Ireland has an embassy, there's somebody in that embassy from Enterprise Ireland who can help you get meetings in Nigeria and meetings in Mumbai and meetings in New York, wherever you're going to. So there's the ecosystem, there's the support structures, there's graduates coming through, there's experienced people. The difficulties, um, the the funding situation in Ireland isn't as strong, I don't think, as other countries. You know, there's there's kind of a there's a big gap between getting your first million and, and getting over five million. You can kind of it's, it's more international. Between those two numbers is very very difficult uh, here. So it's the way you see a lot of the likes of the Collisons leaving Limerick and going to going to Silicon Valley. Because there's there's much better access to money there. I I think something like sixty percent of the world's investment is within kind of a hundred a hundred kilometers of Silicon Valley, um, and then from kind of a from a from a tax perspective, it's 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 difficult for investors. So I mean, you've got the EIIS here and enterprise investment scheme where you can invest say a hundred thousand in a, in a company and you can claim back, I think thirty percent of that over your next three years tax, whereas the same scheme in England. You can claim back 80% over three years, but if the company closes down within those three years, you can claim back 100% of your investment. So it's it's virtually risk-free for an investor in the UK to invest, but here they're actually risking 70% of their money. So um, there's also, you know, when, when options, which you can, it's just kind of a way to incentivize key employees. You can give them options in a company so they can buy shares at a, at a, at a penny a share, for example. Here, you're taxed at the value of those options when you get them. So if I give any of my employees options, which they can't sell, they have to pay the tax in 30 days. Whereas if to do the same thing in the US, you only pay the tax after you've actually sold those shares. So it's a big incentive in the US, but it's actually prohibitive here because you can't do it. There are schemes around it, but they're, you know, tricky. What's your message to policymakers who are listening to this? There's always the the focus you see a lot on the big FDIs, and we're always talking about how much of our corporation tax we're relying on is American tax, being kind of twenty percent or something like that of of the total corporate tax take. But the other eighty percent is Irish companies, under Indigenous companies, and most of these companies are kind of five to twenty employees. You know that's 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 the heart of Irish industry. So those companies need to be incentivized as much as bringing in 
the, the, the foreign corporates. So to make it easier for angels, individuals investing to put money into a company with less risk through that tax mechanism and to make it easier to incentivize um, employees because, you know, there's a high risk for to try and attract somebody from a stable job into a startup. But if you can incentivize them with, with shares in that startup, it makes it a much more attractive op- opportunity for them, which makes it easier to start the company. You mentioned there about education being a big key factor in setting up an organisation here. What are the additional benefits of setting up here, specifically Galway? What's the additional benefits that you see there? Um, it's it's such a, 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 a tight ecosystem. It's, an, it's, a, it's a physically small space, a geographically small space. So, um, and, and there's a huge amount of overlap I see, you know, um, um, you know the the Porter Shed is is kind of connected to the other main accelerators in Dublin, Dogpatch in Dublin, sorry in Ireland, Dogpatch in Dublin and um, in Cork, Killarney and um, Donegal. I think are the other ones. Every Friday, sorry, the first Friday of every month is called First Fridays. There's mentoring sessions for for startups so, in the Porter Shed. Uh, it it alternates around around the country, but okay. you know, so if it's in the Porter Shed, I go into the Porter Shed, but I do it every first Friday of every month. Um, okay. I do it remotely if it's in Dublin. Yeah. Um, you know, the NDRC, which is um, um, kind of the national digital something, um, they kind of run the accelerator in the, in the accelerators in Ireland three three weeks ago. They had like a two-day event in the Porter Shade where people just came with ideas. Some of them were well-advanced. Some of them were just people who wanted to be entrepreneurs. And they had two days of workshopping presentations and then mentoring. And then there was competitive pitches at the end. Um you know, there was, I, I would think, there's probably 20 volunteer mentors there over the two days, sitting down with companies for 30-minute windows, giving them advice, pressure testing their ideas. Th- those kind of services are, are absolutely, you know, vital for, for startups. You know, you come in with a good idea and you have some um, old warhorse pressure testing it for you, you know, and, um, um, and then getting up on stage and doing that kind of investor-type pitch to, to present it to a group of people and get quizzed on it. Um, is is a real good experience for startups, so so you've got those and you know there's there's other kind of enterprise Ireland style um, events and programs that kind of uh, pr- before you get to the stage where you're enterprise Ireland ready, um, where you can learn more about a business. So from from my consultancy years, what I realised is. You know, I'm kind of unusual that my qualifications are in business and strategy and I work in strategy. Most people in startups are, you know, area of expertise. They're like a software engineer is a good idea and starts a company. But they don't know how to run a company. Running a company is a skill by itself. And that's kind of a lot of what you learn in the accelerator. You know, so a software engineer might know how to build a product, but not how to get it to market, not how to get investment, not how to recruit. And these kind of skills are what you learn in the accelerators. Um so there's a, there's a, and the same, you know, every chef eventually opens their own restaurant, but running a restaurant is a totally different skill from being a chef. So it's not just for software engineers. So it's that kind of learning um, curve, but you have two accelerators in Galway. There's one MedTech one in, in NUIG, one tech one. Um, you know, I see a lot of people from in, from the Porter Shed doing guest lecturing out in NUIG or out in uh, GMIT, whatever it's called now, at ATU. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of giving back within the ecosystem, which I think is real value for people coming up. And even people like me who are you know, relatively experienced, there's always somebody here I can ask a question to as well. The flip side of that, what are the challenges of being specific to Galway? Um, it's, it's a kind of a, it's a satellite city. Um, so, you know, a lot of the activities in Dublin, um, like when I did the accelerator, we were in Sheffield, um, which is up north. Um, you know, a lot of the meetings we had to do required getting the train to, to, to London. And the first question was always like, why are you in Sheffield? What's, what's that all about? Um, but then you see it as well, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of Chicago connections in Galway. Funnily enough, our, our investors, our VC is Chicago-based and some of our angels are Chicago-based. And um, we're, we're working with financiers who are Chicago-based. But um, Chicago is kind of similar that it's not New York and it's not Silicon Valley. So, you're, you're, you know, um, Enterprise Ireland have you know a focus on what they call the regions, meaning not Dublin. So by being in not Dublin, 
you're not Dublin. I think that is that is one of the one of the downsides. Obviously, we don't have well, we've relatively close airport, but you don't have a, a direct airport and those kind of connections. And um, so, I, I think just being being a, a satellite city has its own disadvantages. So we could do with a high speed train going from Dublin to Galway. We do a high speed train. Like when when you could fly from Dublin to, or from Galway to London, it was it was um, it was great. You know, mm. just it, it was so much easier. Um, but you know, when 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 I think one of the first mentoring um, sessions I did through the uh, Enterprise Ireland in Dublin, I was kind of talking about us targeting Dublin, and all the mentors said, "Why would you target Dublin when Dublin when London is so close?" You know, so there's always there's always a bigger city. There's always somewhere that is potentially better. Um, but you know, the pros of being in Galway, I think, outweigh that. You know. Mm-hmm. Plus, you, you know, let's add the quality of life in Galway that you're, you know, it's, it's such a small city that you're 20 minutes drive from, from the beach or the countryside or, you know, the, the, there's, and, and the, the vibrant arts and the, the crack. Mm. <laughs> I, was go, I was going to ask if uh, the crack was a hindrance, you know, but um, it's two, two sides of a, of a blade, I guess. Well, I, I, I think you'll find, and this is anecdotal now, that's, that's, that a lot of people that go to NUIG want to stay in Galway is what I find. Whereas when people go to other universities, they've done that and they want to move somewhere else. So I, th- I think the the life in Galway helps retain retain staff. And you know we have our own traffic problems and all that, but it's not comparable to traffic problems in Dublin, and it's certainly not comparable to Lagos. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, so I think the the the, the balance is the the that that classic work work life balance exists here or it can exist here if you make it exist more so than in than, than in the big cities yeah you mentioned covid earlier so how did covid impact your industry and your company um again there was pros and cons um, um we obviously saw um, a drop in in transactions because people weren't going anywhere people weren't working um and it was difficult to 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 send money home, physical cash home. We did see what we what we could do was uh, we were able to kind of focus on building our network. One of the big differences was before COVID, a digital signature wasn't legal anywhere in Africa. So you couldn't, you had to physically sign a, a contract. And they they very quickly, which meant I had to go to Lagos to sign something or it took weeks because you had to, Federal FTX, whatever it is, documents around the place and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but it generally required going to some place to sign sign agreements. Um, digital signatures became legal, so we could we could really accelerate getting things signed. Um, it did slow down integrations though, because a lot of people were working from home, and um, well, everybody was working from home. But a lot of our Merchants in Africa are payments institutions, so they're, they're secure institutions in terms of internet security. So while they had people working from home, they couldn't really implement anything because they couldn't remote access the core servers. So we can kind of had stuff built, but we couldn't deploy it. So um, um, it 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 kind of meant we had a a, a kind of a big pent up. Um, requirement by the time COVID ended when people got back into office but it meant everything else was pent up as well not just us so there was a there was a kind of a, a delay we had a lot of stuff signed but then it was a delay in getting it implemented it also meant that I spent a lot less time on airplanes a lot I, I dramatically reduced my globe my, my carbon footprint which was a good thing uh, and reduced my time away from family which is also a good thing um, you know the, the the trips to Lagos and Mumbai and these places all is very exciting it's very expensive. It's very time consuming. It's very tiring, but it's it's great being in these places. The trips back and forth to London every week or every second week are not exciting. Um, they're just tiring. So there was a kind of a culture of, you know, come and meet me for a cup of coffee and we'll have a chat. So you're kind of flying to London, trying to get five or six meetings in a day, which are different coffee shops around the place, and get back home. Um, whereas it all switched to Zoom during COVID. So after COVID, you know, the question started: When are you in London again? And the answer was never. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we'll just do it online. So, so that, that requirement to meet for a coffee and a chat was removed by, uh, by COVID. So since COVID has um, um, died down 
I think I've only been in London once, maybe in the last two years, uh, where I was every, I was kind of at least twice a month for the, the previous two years. My, my brother's a salesman and he would, he, he's based in um, England and he would have been driving three to 500 miles a, day, a, a week. And um, with COVID, it just switched to WhatsApp, you know, just WhatsApp and video. And he says that even today, it's still all WhatsApp. So it, it, in many ways, it's sort of streamlined mm-hmm. uh, his business, you know. So you're saying something similar? So, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. If it would all be on one platform, it'd be great. But it's, you know, some... We find in, in Africa, everybody wants to use WhatsApp. Um, the US, they're still using Skype for some reason. Um, um, you know, a lot of, most of Europe uses Slack. So you've kind of suddenly got... And the email still exists. So you've suddenly kind of got four different platforms you have to use to communicate with people. Uh, I know people are using Telegram as well. And if you're in the crypto world, you're using Discord. So it's... it's um, uh, yeah, it's really annoying, mm-hmm. but it's but it's better than having to go there. So, so staying on technology, how about how do you see AI playing a factor in your world? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, true AI. I think we're a, we're 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 a ways to go. Yes, I mean the deep learning, Chat GPT stuff. Um, you know, just using it myself for testing stuff really just for writing blogs and things like that you know putting prompts into it to see what it comes back with and it's definitely impressive um, um, in, in in the payments industry you know for, for us people still have to make a payment so there's still a physical sender and a physical receiver so what happens in between might be made more efficient so it shouldn't be a kind of a, a detriment to our industry um, I can see in a lot of industries you know it won't be long before before you know um AI is doing the coding, you know, mm-hmm. in fourth class and you're kind of wondering when they're doing coding in school, is it worth their while? Will coding exist by the time they finish school mm. in terms of somebody actually having the right code or will it just be prompts? Is it more the creative mindsets that they need to think up of ideas as opposed to the, the coding to, to deliver them? In many ways, it's a very unfair question because um, you're talking about starting out in 98 or whatever and, you know, that's whenever I got my first email address. Mm. And we had a, had a conversation back then about how do we see, you know, the internet changing uh, how business will be run or how social interactions will be run or how democracy will run or governments, let's widen that out. And um, yeah. we wouldn't have had uh, the equipment to have this conversation, um, you know, in our, yeah, so... Uh, it, I think because we're at the infancy, it'd be very difficult. Well, it's impossible to foresee what's going, how it's going to affect us. Yeah. You know? So, for you yourself, what does uh, and the organisation? What does the future hold potentially? <laughs> based on, based <laughs> on what I just said about not being able to foresee, but uh, what's what's the short, medium, long term? Um, uh, short, short term is we're kind of. Um, really looking for a strategic partner. We need to scale the business. You know, we, we've kind of focused very much on building the network, which was, you know, kind of, again, an early strategic decision. Um, when we were able to do payments, cash payments from the UK to Ghana, we thought we were great. And then we went to start trying to sell it and realized that people are only really interested in a big footprint. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to have a payments provider can only do one corridor. So we really focused on on building up our network. So like now we've 1.5 million physical cash in points connected to our platform. We've 300 million mobile wallets and we've, well in total, we've got a billion bank accounts. So we're kind of in the process of, of finding a, a strategic partner to fill in more of the merchant end of it so we can kind of grow the transactions. But for us, yeah, it's really, like I said, near the start about the, the win-win scenario of being a for-profit social impact that the more we grow, the more impact we make, the more good we do. So kind of that's really the, the, the model for us is to, is to build it as much as we can over the rest of this. Um, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just on the social impact, where does that money go to exactly? You know, does it go to the Irish government, the European Union, or how does that work? No, no, to the, to the, to the family at home in Lagos or wherever the money's gone to. But who, who, who's running that? In terms of, you know, how does that money get uh, filtered down and who's processing it? Well, it's, it's us. So, yeah. so when, when, when um, 
somebody in you know Sheffield is sending. So the average remittance from from Europe is is two hundred euros, um, uh, twelve times a year. So uh, and same two hundred pounds from the UK. If you're sending out Western Union, it, it's it's costing you you know nineteen pounds to send it home. With with us, it's costing you seven, and that difference is either is either the migrant sending the money has it to support their own lives, or the family at home gets an extra seven euros. Okay, right. And then, yeah. So I mean, seven euros is not much mm. in in. So the social impact is the difference in the percentage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, but I mean, you know, uh, um, you know, you know the, the difference, the UN difference between extreme poverty and emerging from poverty is seventy five pence a day. So you know, um, seven seven euros extra a month on the ground in Senegal or the Ivory Coast makes a big difference. Mm. Forgive me, I, I, I was thinking the social impact was coming out of the 3.5%, but it's actually coming out of the 6% that you're charging less. Yes. 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 Okay, yes. I was confused. Yes. So, sorry, you were saying about your short, medium, long-term plans. You're looking for a strategic planner. Strategic partner. Partner. Um, um, yeah, so it's all about scale. So, I mean, we, we're, we're now... We're, we're quite advanced in the process of, of finding a strategic partner to, to to grow with so we can grow our team. So when you're, you're kind of talking, there's kind of two types of investment really, I suppose, at our stage. There's a VC investment, which is um, just cash. Cash is great. But a strategic, a strategic partner, strategic investor has other network. They have merchants, they have staff. So we're looking for a company as opposed to trying to recruit 10 more staff and create our own marketing campaigns and all that. We're looking to, to partner with a company by, by way of strategic investment so they would invest in Pivot mm. um, and then and then grow as, as part of that network. So that's kind of the way that, that, that most growth in the in, in the industry is, is going at the moment is kind of strategic investment and strategic acquisitions and, and ultimately um, we're obviously looking for a kind of a social impact minded company to do that with. Um, and, and then, you know, the, the medium long term is you know, to grow that as much as possible over the, you know, to grow the amount of transactions in the network we have, but then also to grow the network as well. So we, we like, we have payments in the Philippines, but that's, that's the only Asian payments we have, for example. We don't have payments at the moment in, in the US, which is the biggest sender of remittance in the world. We don't have anything in um, the Middle East, um, Saudi and UAE being the second and third biggest sender of remittances in the world. So, so there's big, there's big chunks we still need to bite. And what's the biggest barriers to moving into a new country? Um, generally, licenses. I mean, the, the US kind of portrays itself as one big market, but, but it's not. It's it's 50 separate markets. So to launch in the US, you need 50 licenses. Um, so, I mean, we're our, our current model is we're um, under the, the payment service directive regulations. We're a technical service provider. So we're actually a tech company, not a payments company. We're not a licensed payments institution, so we use partners to move the funds. So that's part of our strategic partnership. We're looking for a partner who has the licenses that we can remove that 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 um, requirement for a partner. Um, but to launch in the states, like I said, you, like in Europe, you need one license, and then it's passported through the EU. Whereas in the states, you need fifty separate licenses. Um, so we are talking to some partners over there, who who we can collaborate with to do to do payments in the Middle East. I mean, in UAE. You have to have a local entity. You have to have local staff. You have to have local license, local licenses, but also like local visas for your staff. Um, so setting up there is 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 expensive. Um, it's also a requirement that a a, um, a a local national owns a certain percentage of the company. I can't remember that percentage, but it's large. It's like almost fifty percent. It's either plus or minus fifty percent. So you need to find somebody over there that you can trust and. Um, so there's a lot of local requirements that, that make it difficult to, to open in countries, certain countries. In Europe is, Europe is great because you can kind of open wherever you want. Mm-hmm. Part of what we do then is in, in Africa, kind of we're partnered with, with, with payments institutions like Flutterwave, like Cellulent, like PowerPay, um, that can kind of process transactions on our behalf and then settle them on our behalf as well. So what do you want out of this conversation in terms of if the right person was hearing? So policy, we were talking earlier about, um, I can't even remember what we were talking about. We never talked More about supports policy. for startups. Make, make, you know, oh, yeah. There, yeah. There's a lot of ecosystem supports there, but the actual financial supports could be yeah. improved greatly. I mean, there's, this, there's a, you know, there, there's, I suppose there's probably six or seven 
active VCs in Ireland, most of their money is coming from Enterprise Ireland. So it's kind of the same pot of money that's circulating, is, would be my opinion of it. But but to, to, to make it easier for individuals to invest, make it less risky for individuals to invest in startups, financially risky, um, would, would be good. You know, we're always looking to talk to strategic partners, partners interested in impact. Um, you know, I suppose what for, for, for starting, for building entrepreneurs, I mean, I, like I said, the NDRC had a two-day event recently in the Portershed. And, you know, there's... The, the, the enthusiasm of the young was fantastic. Um, there's there's this kind of a burn hot or burn out type attitude in 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 the the startup world, which is again kind of fueled by by Silicon Valley models. You know, I did it myself, where you're kind of double jobbing or triple jobbing and running a company and working elsewhere to make a living. Um, you know the, the the wellness industry is starting to come into that now. I, you know, for 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 budding entrepreneurs, you know, taking care of yourself is 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 really important. The basics of eating right and you know this kind of model of eating pizza at two o'clock in the morning in the office. Don't don't fall for that. <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, that was actually one of my questions: was how, how do you unwind? Um, well, I've I've a fairly strong Tai Chi practice, so I've been I've been. Um, practicing Tai Chi for about 21 years now um, with the, in, in Galway with Nilo Flynn the, the Chen Tai Chi Ireland so I, mean, I, have a, I have a class every week but I practice every day So you're a, a student or a, a student yeah, okay. no, yeah so um, and then we train and, with and, a, and Niall's a teacher is Niall's it? a teacher yeah okay. so and we, we our school trains under a, a Chinese grandmaster Grandmaster Wang Hai Jun who was, who was here last weekend actually he's here three or four weekends a year for, for seminars but you know that's part of the morning routine um, um, you know, for for any budding entrepreneurs, I recommended to a few people last or at the, the event. Um, Rory Prendergast, who's a local entrepreneur, he's a book called um, "The Game Changer Formula," and it's you know the importance of the morning routine and what that is and your exercise routine. So I mean, I do, I've you know I've up at seven and tai chi, and then I walk my son to school, and then I go for a walk down the pier. So I've kind of get home by half eight, but I've done like an hour an hour and a half exercise at that stage and then start work at nine and you kind of start with a clear head and um and then I, I do essentially clock out at five o'clock sometimes I have to work afterwards but not as a rule and then it's family time and my spending quality time with my wife and nine-year-old son and then at, at weekends I generally don't work weekends so father and Sunday and on 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 Saturdays generally and family days and on, on Sundays so um it's that work-life balance you know, make sure it happens. Like you know, the the, the guys, mainly the guys, actually, funny enough, coming through the the the, the portrait event, where people with full time jobs, forty hours a week, but but talking about working forty or fifty hours a week on their startup, as well as their full time job. Um, so my advice to all of those guys was, you know, you need to look after yourself as well. Mm. Sorry, that that was a, like a segue because you were talking about um, potential listeners to, to get out of them what you would like to get out of them so anything else on the shopping list shopping list um yeah well it's it's for us it's always we're always looking for partners we're always looking for strategic alignment so um and we're always looking for investment i mean we, we i said strategic investment is 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 more value than cash but we're startup world is always looking for cash so any vcs out there want to talk to me give me a call but yeah impact companies strategic partners how we can grow um is, is what we're always looking for Right. And the Porter Shed, first Friday of each month, is that an open event? Can you publicly go yeah, to it? Yeah, it is. You need to register with the Porter Shed, but it is, I think, yeah. I'm trying to think where the Porter Shed is. Where is it? Well, there's two, um, but there's actually three buildings at the moment. It's on Lombard Street, the same street as St. Pat's School. So okay. the, the car park there, the building either side of the car park is Porter Shed 1 and 2. Okay. So they do a lot of um, talks and tech events and hackathons and all this kind of stuff. So there's, there's kind of always events on in there where you can go and listen to an industry expert or you can go and... So that new, that new building is a, is, is a porter shed? Yes, that used, okay. to, it used to be the City Tribune office. Okay, yeah. okay. Sorry, I interrupted there. Um, yeah, so I mean, there, there, there's always events in there. I, I would think there's probably 20 events a month in there where you might have an industry expert giving a talk or you might have... You know, they had a, a gaming hackathon recently where two days where people came into groups to create create games. Um, um, obviously, the gaming industry in, in Galway is growing, which with quite a few few of the big game game companies in town, Romero and EA's 
are, are in town, but also some some local startups as well. Um, so they're kind of really the center of the ecosystem. I think you can just check their website, and most of the things are available for people to go to. Yeah. Ollie, um, I've exhausted all my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Um, I, I think I've exhausted all my answers. <laughs> <laughs> we did well then. <laughs> We're ready for a lie down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. No, it was good. It's good. Thanks for the the opportunity to talk. Well, no, it was it was very informative, and um, you're a very good talker. Actually, you know, whenever I'm listening, I'm I'm already doing the editing in my head. You know, and I, I don't think there's much editing required in this conversation. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I, I I really think that's part of the. The Irish skill set in terms of international business is we're good talkers, but we're we're good relationship builders as well. Um, you know, there, there used to be a thing called relationship marketing, which I don't think exists anymore. It's probably called networking now, where it's like building relationships with people is how you build a business. And, and that's a natural skill that the Irish have. And you can see it internationally um, um, when, when you're when you're traveling abroad. And especially when you travel abroad and you meet other Irish people, they will go absolutely out of their way to, to support you and, and help with introductions and help as much as they can. But yeah, that's, that's the gift of the gab is definitely a skill set that's really useful in business. Did you kiss the Blarney Stone? Uh, I, well, I have done, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> it's I, a, it's, a, a, it's a quite, a, quite a weird experience now, to be honest with you. I'm a fear of heights. So my all my siblings did it and uh, I, I couldn't do it. Mm. Yeah, I think... God knows what happened. What would yeah, have happened I, if I had it? I think you'd be all right. <laughs> 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 okay, Ali. Guru Mayogat. Pajarot. Slam. Slam. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.